And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have. Until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far the reading. God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that You would use this Word even now in our lives, that You would encourage us by it, that You would convict us by it, and that You would cause us to grow in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the fourth letter that we have seen in this group of letters to the churches of Asia Minor from the Lord Jesus Christ. In that sense, it is the middle letter. And it is a letter that, in some senses, builds upon what has come before, but in another sense, breaks ground. And I was struck this afternoon, perhaps you were as well as you heard it read, in the providence of God, with no intention at all, that there are striking parallels between this text and the text in Acts 15. Actually, Two of the phrases, two of the sins that they are accused of are identical to two of the four things that the church is told to keep from. Sexual immorality and things sacrificed to idols. It's another reason, another symbol of how God doesn't change and how the Word of God is the same throughout. But what I would like us to look at is this church here in Thyatira and how Jesus Christ speaks to them. And so, in that manner, I'd like to look briefly at three things. First, the setting for the letter. Second, then, the substance of the letter. And then third, the sentence in the letter. The setting for the letter, the substance or the content of the letter, and the sentence that is rendered by Jesus in this letter. 
Let's take a look then first at the sentence for the, excuse me, the setting for the letter. Thinking first about some of these previous letters that have been written. We've looked at the letters to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and Pergamum. You remember the problem in Ephesus. It was that it was a church filled with doctrine, but yet without love, without works. And then there was the poor, persecuted church in Smyrna. This church that was poor, but yet rich spiritually. But they were persecuted by those who were around them. They were persecuted especially by, you'll recall, the synagogue of Satan. And then the third letter was a letter to Pergamum, where the church was located at Satan's throne. And they were a church that was guilty of compromising the truth, of letting sin come in. And now we have this church at Thyatira that is, in a sense, building on Pergamum. We'll see that in just a moment. Now, you may also recall that one of the things I told you about really each one of these cities was how famous they were. Do you remember? Ephesus was a big commercial city. It was one of the largest, perhaps the fourth largest city in all of the Roman Empire. And we see it in the book of Acts. Ephesus was a famous, politically important, militarily important city. And then you remember Smyrna. Smyrna, they had their own coins minted so that they could have uh, their propaganda about how great their city was, first in beauty in Asia. They thought much of themselves. They were an important city. And then, of course, there was Pergamum, which is the capital of this area. Again, a very important city, both uh, economically and religiously and militarily. It was called Satan's throne because there were huge temples and there were large walls. It was a fortress of this area. And so now we come to Thyatira and perhaps we're wondering what's so famous about Thyatira? What interesting historical facts do we have? And the reality is Thyatira is pretty much a nobody city. It's not very important militarily. It's been occupied by the Romans since about 190 B.C. So at this time, for about three centuries. Not quite. And it had been occupied by various parties over and over again because, you see, Thyatira was the the warm-up pad for Pergamum. Thyatira was the practice squad. Any of you that have ever played football or any sport know what the purpose of the practice squad is, right? They're to get the team ready and they get thrown around because they're all 20 pounds too light or two two inches too short. They're the guys that the stars dunk on and that the, the linemen knock over to get ready for a game. And that's what Thyatira was like because, you see, behind Thyatira was this huge fortress of Pergamum, this incredibly important military area, and Thyatira didn't even have walls. Armies would roll through and conquer them. It changed hands more times than you could count. It was military insignificant. But it was benefiting now at this point from what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Finally, people had stopped running them over. They had had some peace. Previously, they were like those uh, people you see in the cartoons that they would get up and a car would run them over. And then they dust themselves off and another car would run them over coming the other way. But now they had peace. 
But they weren't politically significant either. There was nothing really important about this city politically. It wasn't uh, a place where kings and queens went or where Roman officials were. It was kind of a backwater. Was there anything at all significant about Thyatira? One thing. Thyatira, when it had peace, was significant economically. It was a place that had at least two booming industries that we know of from archaeology. The first was the textile industry, specifically the dyeing of fabrics. The second was metalworking, specifically working in bronze. You all know someone from Thyatira. Well, not personally. But do you remember that seller of purple? That convert, the first convert in Europe, Lydia? She was from Thyatira. And she was a part of this industry. And this was a very significant industry. Some of you perhaps have heard about this. I spent a good portion of the Christmas period poking some gentle fun at Daryl and his LSU attire. You know, he has the the gold and the purple colors, and I explained to him that a much more manly uh, apparatus would be gold and blue. But he had just gotten a new-to-him truck, and I, I told him that someone had already defaced it by putting some LSU stickers on it. All this yellow and purple. It's kind of making fun of the purple. But in reality, even though today purple is pretty abundant and it's more often worn by females... Purple was a color of royalty in this day because it was almost impossible to get. You could only get it in two places, from a fish that you could get single drops of purple dye from its throat or from a flower that was grown in the area of Thyatira. It was very expensive. That's why kings wore purple, because no one else could afford it. Everyone else was dressed in fashionable gray and brown. So you see, this was an economic powerhouse, in a sense, when there was peace at Thyatira. But there was also another sense in which Thyatira was not very significant. They were significant economically, but they were not significant religiously. They didn't have a god or a goddess. They didn't have a religion. What they had was tied to their economics. This was very much a materialistic culture, because you see, what they had were guilds. The modern version of a guild after a fashion is a union. So they had the guild for the metal workers and the guild for the textile workers and the guild for the farmers and the guild for the artisans. And each one of these guilds had their own god or goddess. And so in order to go to a business meeting, perhaps some of you had to go to these Christmas dinners that happen around Christmas. You have to go to the business dinners with clients or with the employers or the employees. You had to do those sorts of things back in the first century, too. Except for you would go to these meetings and they would be uh, pagan festivals to gods or to goddesses. In order to hold your job, in order to do what was expected of you in the economy, you had to be involved in really petty religion. That's important as we think about what's going on here. So this is what Thyatira was like. And the church there receives a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll recall that we've seen over and over again that the Lord uses a certain form of address and describes himself in a certain way in order to make a point with the church. 
And so here he is described as the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He's described as being very powerful. His deity is expressed. He is the Son of God. This is the only time he is called the Son of God in all of the book of Revelation. Perhaps like you, like me, you are reminded of the Son of God in Psalm 2, especially as we look at the language about the rod of iron, pots. And so the power of Jesus Christ is expressed. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. We've seen this in chapter 1, verse 14. It reminds us that Jesus sees everything. He sees through all of our hypocrisy, all of our tricks. You cannot pull the wool over Jesus' eyes of fire. And that's important because at Thyatira, they think they can. And Jesus is reminding them that he sees everything. And finally, he's described with feet of burnished bronze. And you can imagine that in a city of metal workers, they would understand exactly what glowing hot bronze would look and feel like. But feet of bronze also speaks of feet of judgment. We see that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. That judgment is meted out by Jesus. So we have here a Jesus who is divine, a Jesus who sees everything, and a Jesus who is ready to judge. Well, why is he so? We see this here in the substance of the letter, which really revolves around two things so often. First, the works that are commended, and secondly, the things that are condemned. What works are commended at this church? Well, our Lord says that He has seen and He knows their works and He knows their love and their faith and their service and their patient endurance. So we need to remember two things, that God is always at work in His church, even in those in which there are difficulties, even in those in which there are sin. But there's another thing that we need to remember, that there can be much good on the surface of a dead or dying church. There can be kindness. There can be cards and notes. There can be shaking of hands. There can be hugs. But if there's not anything behind it, it's all on the surface. And you see here, they're known for their love and known for their faith, or we might even say more their faithfulness. And known for what comes from it, service comes from love. When we love others, we serve them. And faithfulness produces endurance or patience. So there is something to commend here in this church. And you'll notice that he even says, you know, you're doing better than you were last week or last month. So this church that has all of these problems has some things to commend about it, and things are even working better than they were in the past. But there's a problem. And verse 20 comes once again, and we've seen it before. One of the more frightening little words in the Bible. But. While I know your love, I know your faith. But. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who is a prophetess. See, she was bringing in the world and worldliness and sin into the church. One of my 
Uh, favorite preachers had a, a quip about this that I'll share with you. I think it's quite humorous. He said, if we think about the church at Pergamum, that they married the world, in Thyatira they celebrated anniversaries. You see, it had gone to the next step. There was compromise in Pergamum, but here sin was full-blown and tolerated in the church. There was no one to speak against it. And there was a kind of naivete that was going on. You see, tolerance can be very dangerous because we become naive to the effects of sin around us. Oftentimes, what happens is not even a participation in sin, it's merely an indifference to sin, a toleration of sin. Well, you know, they act, the kids act like that these days. Well, how many people do you really know that have made it past 10 years in marriage? I guess, you know, divorce is just what happens. Oh, well, you know, everybody cheats a little on their taxes. Right? It's an indifference to the sin around us. And when we do that, it sucks us in. And we begin to do more and more. We think white lies are actually a good thing. Because, of course, they're white, not black. We think a little bit of taking is good because, of course, it's not a lot. And this is what was happening here at Thyatira. And so our Lord references in this letter the Jezebel who is in their midst, a prophetess. Now, I highly doubt that the woman's actual name was Jezebel. This is, this is not the typical kind of name that you give a child, you know, hoping that they grow up and are successful in the world. Right? It's like, no one seems to take my advice when I tell people that they might want to consider a perfectly good biblical name like Dorcas. Just think that doesn't fit. Right? And Jezebel isn't just an odd name, it's a name of wickedness, it's a name of evil. But, so, what we're probably describing here is either a woman who is teaching, or perhaps it's even a faction within the church. And it's modeled after the, the sins of Jezebel herself. You remember Jezebel, who she was? She was the queen to King Ahab. And she was the one who seduced Israel to leave the Lord, and to follow after Baal. Now, oftentimes, we think about Jezebel only as this sort of towering queen, almost like the wicked witch in Narnia, who wields this huge sword and is out to kill Elijah. But really, we get another picture at a later scene in life. Do you remember when Jehu comes to bring judgment upon Jezebel and he's riding the chariot through the streets? Do you remember what she does, what her weapon is? She puts on her makeup. She dolls up her lips. She puts on her flirtiest dress. And she tries as hard as she can for a woman way past the age of these things to go in the window and give Jehu a come-hither look. Of course, he will take none of it. But it should remind us that that's probably more likely what she did in Israel. She was probably more likely a conniver. The woman who would come alongside you and put her arm just a little too much around your shoulder. Who would give you just a little too many compliments to get what she wanted. You see, that's what's happening here in the church. They're being seduced to go after the things that God has spoken against. We saw that this morning. By temptation. That's why the letter tells us that she is seducing them. 
And what is she seducing them to? She's seducing them to immorality, to being involved with pagan festivals. You can almost imagine the way she would say, oh, I wouldn't worry too much about going to that pagan festival for the deity of the, of the blacksmiths. You need to earn money and support the church. Go ahead. Really. It's just physical things. It's not spiritual. And so we see another thing here. She would talk about the deep things. Separating out phys- the physical from the spiritual Kind of a a beginning of Gnosticism that says that, you know, the things that are physical and material aren't important. Things like work, things like food, things like marriage. There's another spiritual plane that we can be on. And we can do pretty much whatever we want otherwise. You see, this is how people come and seduce us. Sometimes they come in in the guise of fawning women. Sometimes they come in the guise of professors in tweed jackets with glasses who say, well, of course, let me tell you about all the deep things of philosophy. Or let me tell you all of the deep things of physics and how it's clear that the universe could be created simply because there's gravity. See, these are the deep things. And we want to be thought intelligent. We want to be thought wise and so we're tempted to be drawn into that especially when we're first perhaps in college and we haven't had all of the turmoil of raising a family and seeing sickness and illness and so we're drawn into that but you see jesus calls the deep things what they are they're the deep things of satan not of god god has deep things things so deep they are beyond finding out the depths of the scriptures are a place where you can drown. And yet they're also a place where you can wade. But you see, the deep things of the world are to draw us from the wisdom that is found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls them for what they are. They're dangerous. And this kind of danger is especially prominent in a place like Thyatira, which, beloved, is a place like Houston. It's a place like America where materialism is first and foremost. Where we worry more about our 401k than our children's morals. Where we worry more about how we will be taxed than how often we should read the scriptures. You see, our entire society is built around an economic lens and materialism. And the church is called to put that in its place. And to follow after Jesus. And this is what's happening here in Thyatira. Well, that's the substance of the letter that Jesus writes to them. But there is also a sentence, a fearful sentence. It's a sentence that comes first and foremost to those who are unrepentant. Do you notice what Jesus says? He says, I gave Jezebel time to repent and she would have none of it. You see, this is the lie so often that perpetuates itself in the world. It comes in two ways. First is, there's always more time. I'll behave once I've sowed my wild oats. I'll behave once, once I've just had just enough. I, I can, I can follow the Lord anytime I want. Right? It's almost like the way the drug addict speaks about heroin. Oh, I could get off crack anytime I want. I could get off heroin anytime I want. But then there's another lie. There's a lie that says, There is no opportunity for repentance. 
that God judges without giving the opportunity, the call to repentance. And that's not true. Jesus gives a call to repentance to the world. Even when they do not heed it, it is, it is out there. And those who do not heed the call to repentance will be judged for it, even as Jezebel and those at Thyatira will be. There is a sentence that is given here. Do you notice what happens? To use the imagery here in Thyatira, the bed of sin becomes the bed of sickness. Do you see it? Because they are sinful, they will be visited with sickness. They will go on to the sickbed. And they will be judged and destroyed. You see, sin brings about destruction. It always does. It may seem to work for a season, but the end of it is always death. So Jesus tells those who are unrepentant that judgment is coming upon you. And then he turns to those who are under attack and he says, you must hold firm. And it's interesting again, there's language that is once again reminiscent of Acts 15. He tells them that he will lay no other burden on them. It's the same phrase that is used in the letter in Acts 15. No other burden. You see, what he's telling them is, that they need to hold fast, but they need to not fall prey to the opposite error. And this is something that we need to hear in our day and age. You see, when we look out and we see wickedness and we see sin and we see filth, what we want to do is to hold up and to make up every rule we can to avoid it. Thou shalt only listen to music that has the following criteria. One, two, three, four. Thou shalt only wear clothing that has the following criteria. One, two, three, four. Thou shalt only speak of certain things. Now, is there appropriate and inappropriate music? Of course. Is there appropriate and inappropriate attire? Of course. But you see, what Jesus is saying to the faithful and what he's saying to you is you need to go to the Scriptures for that. Avoid over-legislating because those who are around you are wracked with sin. Follow only what the Lord has given to you. Don't lay other burdens on yourself. Obey the Lord. This is what he says to those who are under attack. And then he has a final word. A final word to those who overcome. We see this here in verse 26. To the one who conquers... And who keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. Do you see the irony here? He says to this church that perhaps have stories that go back to their great grandparents about how they are the the racing track for other armies. The, The history of Thyatira runs something like this. Build it, get destroyed, rebuild it. Get destroyed, rebuild it. Get destroyed. Rebuild it. And he says, you will overcome and you will rule and reign with Jesus. In a sense, he says, Jesus will make your wildest dreams come true. Your wildest biblical dreams. You will reign with me. You will see the greatest blessings that you could ever imagine. And then he adds one little thing to remind us 
of what's most important. He says that they will rule over the nations, they will rule over with a rod of iron, but then he says, I will give him, verse 28, the morning star. Now what does that mean? Is that like the star of Bethlehem? Is that the Big Dipper? What does it mean to get the Big Dipper? No, if we think about it, in the Scriptures, the morning star, the bright and morning star, we might say with the hymnist, is whom? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they will get not only the blessings that they desire, but they will get Jesus Himself. That's what Jesus says to you this evening. As you live in a world that is materialistic, as you look out at a church throughout the nation, throughout the world, and are perhaps disgusted by all of the materialism and the compromise and the sin that has come into it, and you wonder whether there will be any victory ever, Jesus says, yes, we will overcome, I will overcome, and you will reign with me, and you will get me. What better promise can we have? All of the struggles that we have, all of the challenges, all of the sadness, all that we endure will be ending. And we will receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that we can take comfort. In that we can persevere. And in that we can know that we have overcome. 